Hi, this is episode five in a series where I'm trying to take a novel from first ideas all the way to either a final draft or failure. I don't want to start each episode with increasingly long recaps, so if you'd like to catch up, the first episode is called Writing a Novel Part One. There's a link to it in the show notes of today's episode, and all episodes are on my SoundCloud page. That's soundcloud.com forward slash Tim Thank you for listening. And while I don't wish to be presumptuous, may I say you are looking just incredible today, an absolute dream. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show, we have three guy ropes lashed to the wicker basket of our writing hot air balloon. Rope the first to help you write more, rope the second to help you write better and rope the third to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. To that end, I talk to authors, I look at listeners' first pages and at the moment I'm trying to put together a novel episode by episode, breaking down the process and quite possibly breaking down in the process. We'll see, I don't know. That's part of the entry fee of creativity, I guess, not knowing. Maybe some writers plug into a formula, and I don't say that derisively, because formula writing is what I'm trying to do here, and and frankly we're all following implicit formulae, uh, whether we're cognizant of it or not. But maybe some authors become so at home with what they want to do and their voice that they really can just channel it at some point. They get an idea, they run with it, and it flows onto the page. Frankly, doing this podcast feels like that to me. It's not rote by any means. It feels like it comes from me, uh, from my heart, probably is overstating it in the cheesiness stakes. But, you know, I, I feel like I'm being authentic when I write stuff down, but it also comes easily. I, you know, I enjoy doing it, but I, I don't sit for hours wondering what I'm going to say, angsting over it, editing and re-editing, snipping things, thinking, oh God, is that right? Are people going to not like that? You know, if I want to, I'll just switch the mic on and and go and do one of my writing rambles. And I don't even know what I'm going to talk about. And I just talk. And I'm comfortable with that. It's a domain where I'm confident. And ultimately, you know, I give close to zero shits about making mistakes. Maybe actually that deserves a few moments digression in case, you know, I've accidentally stumbled onto something there about non-pathological modes of creativity. Like, I, I love talking to you. I love hearing from you as well. I get mail pretty much every day. So although clearly the dialogue is skewed in terms of output, it still is a conversation of such sorts, but you know, sometimes people criticise, tell me things that they that I do that they don't like, and that's fine. Occasionally, you know, I make changes in response, but in the last analysis, I'm not really bothered. You know, if I had to edit and produce this and boil it down to some perfect essence every week, I simply wouldn't do it. Perfect would be the impossibly powerful nemesis of good. Now, I mean, I can even, I can hear, I can feel the voices coming up in me uh, saying, well, you, maybe you should try harder on it, Tim. And I can, I can feel them bubbling up and they're not all my voice. They're sometimes, it's interesting how, what some people would call my inner critic, but these inhibitory or critical or modulatory voices Sometimes I ascribe them to sometimes I ascribe them to people I admire. You know, they're not people who've been abusive in my life. They're often people I've sometimes they're pe- people I've never met. You know, they're media figures or something like that, or you know, a writer. And, and I imagine them saying, "Oh, well, are you sure about that?" You know, maybe your podcast would be much better 
if you put in the time, if you really thought about what you were going to talk about and then you planned it out and then you wrote it down and then you went back and you had an editing pass and you hired a producer and you created a kind of sting for the music of the show and all these different things, I can feel that coming up. But I'll give you an example. I was only able to make my Couch to 80K writing boot camp because I was prepared to put something out that was all first draft that I made up as I went along, that I produced on my own without funding, that I recorded sometimes late at night or after pushing my daughter in her buggy, sometimes without a script. Sometimes I was recording it while she was asleep in her cot next door. I was squeezing around the reality of my life as lived, where I have other more important identities and I've got other roles and I've got to make a living. Now, are there improvements that could be made to that course? Absolutely, of course. But if not committing the mistakes it contains had been a condition for my making it, it wouldn't exist. It's funny that, isn't it? How high aspirations, high standards. I want to make the best writing course ever written. I want to write the coolest, most exciting story ever. I want to write uh, this beautiful, poetic, subtle, fluid, literary novel. How what? seem like positive desires might have primarily an inhibitory function because it, it's being an aspiration to aspire right it, it, there's something there that makes us think of a mountaintop or a guiding star some distant point that we're moving towards the metaphor we tend to think in our, our in our mind when we have a goal, a target, is one of a pulling towards energy. That it is like a tractor beam, like a magnet. It is reaching out and it is guiding us towards it. But I'm not sure that's how they actually function. Because what's going on there, let's think about it for a moment. If you think to yourself, I'm going to write an awesome story what actual executable commands are contained in that? None. What you've actually introduced is a standard. Now there's something in your head to compare the work you're producing against. So you write, then you check, is this awesome? Is this meeting the criteria of the task? Aside from anything else, that's a whole additional cognitive load that you're adding to the writing process, this continual subroutine of evaluation, of checking to make sure you haven't gone off track. It's an, it's an exclusion, exclusionary narrative, isn't it? Because what you're doing is you're looking to see what... Because if you find out it is awesome, there's actually nothing additional to do. So you haven't improved it. What you're only checking to do is to find out what is the, the state of not awesome. And then you're deleting that and going back and doing something again because you know it, you, you're just constantly asking is this what an awesome story looks like is this what a great writer would produce with the implicit assumption if no then stop evaluate adjust or delete and restart but the act of checking and evaluation is taking resources away from the act of creation right that, that it's using the same resources and so it's making it harder which makes poor writing more likely which makes you're halting the production line while you check more likely which makes deleting stuff and going back more likely which means you're not moving forward which means makes being dispirited and giving up more likely which means that you produce less work which means you're less trained in the act of writing 
You're doing less writing, but more evaluation, which makes your standards potentially higher. And actually, there's no there's there's no quality control in there for your ability to evaluate your own work. Right. You are evaluating your own work, but there's no meta evaluation there. Am I good at telling what's good or bad? Because if I'm not, then I shouldn't actually be responsible for this process. Right. And and, and eventually it's like your whole creative process becomes this constipated colon crammed full of compacted cheeseburgers. I've said in previous episodes that creativity and originality are a form of carefully curated mistakes. Something new, something surprising must perforce violate expectation and break a rule at some level. If you're policing your work for errors, you will kill the greatest parts of your story. It's like planting seeds, then continually spraying the ground with DDT. That's the insecticide dichlorodiphenyltrichloroethane, not the wrestling move. Although if you were continually getting opponents in an inverted headlock and slamming them into your rhubarb patch a la Jake the Snake Roberts, I dare say that would scupper your chances of a blue rosette at the village fate. Also, I have just finished doing a big bunch of editing on another project. It's been incredibly stressful, to be honest, in in ways I can't really go into on the podcast at the moment. Sorry to be coy. I'm feeling, I think, like a lot of people during this pandemic uh, burned out this week tired I just, and I only say this because I think it's important when I'm talking about producing a novel and going through this process to bring in the psychological elements because the reason a lot of people stop is because you just have a couple of bad weeks where life gets in the way and then you it gets left behind and then you don't come back to it and then you feel like you can't come back to it and you feel like oh that's my failure and not a function of you know I just had to move house I just went through a breakup I just had changed jobs. I just went through a difficult time at work. I've just been ill. Someone I love has been ill. I've just had m- money worries. I've just got married and it was great. You know, that could be the thing. And I've been looking after my kids. I've been doing all these amazing or difficult things. I've been a, a human alive in meat space, having to face different challenges of being a human. You know, I don't just get to be a sort of brain floating in amniotic fluid using neural impulses to create text on on a monitor that's wired up to the jar that I'm floating in of course you're a human in the world and a lot of those problems but not all of them are kind of removed for uh white upper middle class writers who have enough income to fall back on or a partner who works and it's still hard for them to produce novels but those things get amplified generally for writers in various marginalised categories. I I, I don't always like using that term as a a blanket term. I I think it can sometimes be sort of tickling the edge of of, um, disparaging, patronising and infantilising if it's used too glibly, right? But... um, it's it's tricky, you know, if you have, have mental health issues, it's tricky to write. If you are a single parent, it's tricky to find the time to write. If you are working class and you don't have the same con- contacts that a middle class person with an arts degree who knows people in publishing have, you know, it's tricky. There's all sorts of different, there's just 
things that people don't notice. There's things that I haven't noticed as a writer until later on when you look back and it's like, well, how how did you get that agent? Well, actually, it did actually end up being through somebody I knew was how we were introduced. Now, they liked my work, but it was also I had that extra bump of we had a knew someone mutually this person who was my friend is now in this position in this publisher and this person who was my friend is now this position in this agency and I'm friends with this writer and this writer and this writer and this writer so when we talk I can go oh have you read such and such this book oh yeah yeah no we went to university together you know that actually and I feel deeply uncomfortable in publishing circles I feel completely I always did since I when I first started sort of like moving in them um when I made a tv program for channel 4 back in 2005 uh, but again the fact that I did that right like I'm going god I remember how awkward I was going to literary parties when I was shooting how to get a book deal for channel 4 in 2005 but I was shooting a tv show for channel 4 in 2005 and yes they did choose me after an audition but the reason I got asked to do that audition was because they phoned up my university and somebody I was friends with was working in the office and suggested me. So, like, this is like... You see? Do you see how pernicious it is? Now, I, you know, I know I got onto that on merit in the sense that they met me and decided I'd be good for it, but but, but it was... But it was a... Not everyone was asked... And we forget these things when we talk about it. I'm getting sli- I'm getting extremely sidetracked, but I think that's okay. But just to say, look, I just want to acknowledge the way that way that life gets in the way. Otherwise, otherwise, we just talk about how to write a novel, and 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 we don't mention how to be a human, and 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 so we only talk about the novel side, and it just leaves out. I suspect most people who would want to write a novel are then excluded. And, and we have this very narrow tranche of upper middle class white writers who have some kind of money to fall back on, who have some way of play, paying their bills, who maybe have another full time job and they and, and and who will just not acknowledge what a massive advantage it is. I, I suspect because, you know, like me you know, you still don't feel particularly successful. You don't, you find it really hard. And so someone's saying, and you've had it really easy. You go, God, this was, this was easy mode. This was easy mode. What? (laughs) I'm not coping. You know, like I'm not good at this. I don't feel in any way adept at it. I don't feel I have any natural aptitude for this as a craft or as a career. And you're telling me that, I'm doing this with armbands and infinite lives. What? You must be joking. And, and, and there's a feeling of threat because you go, are you saying you're going to take this away from me now because I'm not coping as it is? That's, I think, when we have these kind of conversations about, around privilege and stuff. I suspect why um, many people probably react badly and in a way that isn't helpful with kind of anger and defensiveness but I think underneath that is just like a like cold fear they're like I'm (laughs) 
well, I, I, I've been I've been having help because I, I feel like I'm not coping and I feel like I'm really struggling. And yeah, but imagine all the people who don't even get to write their book because they've got everything that someone like me is facing plus a bunch of other stuff, right? It's like, and as soon as you frame it in terms of Do you want to help someone who wants to write and wants to find stories within themselves, whether they get published or not, you know, do you want to expand the pool of stories we draw from? Yeah, yeah, yeah I really do. So, and I, I you know, I, I suspect actually that would not make a huge negative impact on me in, in the end. I think, as the, uh, I, I, and I suspect also the more that publishing becomes now, and the, here the arrogance comes back in. Is I suspect the more that publishing were a meritocracy, I have a, I, I think I have a sneaky, arrogant feeling that the more publishing were a meritocracy, I, I would survive under those conditions in a way that some extremely wealthy writers at the moment wouldn't. Wow. So you can, you can see, like, the, 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 there's the kind of behind the kind of uh, charming vulnerability, their beats a sociopathic self-worth. Well, no, Tim, that's all right. That's all right. You're allowed to... I, I, I love the stuff I, I write. I wouldn't write it if I didn't. You know, I, I, I completely accept that it's not for everyone, but I wouldn't write these stories if I didn't... I wasn't really into them, kind of like... I wasn't like, this is cool. And I think that's how we all should be. You know, I think that's kind of... Awesome. Anyway, look, the, my point was before I got sidetracked by what started off as a spirited creed curve for social justice and ended up <laughs> with me going the true social justice would be I would be more dominant in the publishing scene because I'm great, which is wow. That's an that's an that's an incredible that's an incredible uh, vault fast, Tim Clare. That's an that's an am an amazing and revealing insight into my character i've managed to make it all about me <laughs> what, a, what a beautiful unique man i am um but one important thing this colossal editing process reminded me of is that you cannot pre-edit a book right you can't cut then write you can only make then cut I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but so many times I've had friends who are writers or I've spoken to authors on this podcast. And bear in mind, you don't always hear all of the conversation. Uh, what makes it to air isn't always the conversation. Sometimes I have talked to someone for, you know, upwards of half an hour after I've stopped recording. And, and, and sometimes stuff comes out there that wouldn't be appropriate to talk about on air. Not like murders, but books that aren't released yet or things that you know with either of us are dealing with in our current process or things you know that are stressing us out that we don't want to talk about because it's you know it's just kind of water cooler talk really um and so, you know but often you I talk to people authors who finished their finished their first book or have just finished their first book and they get to their second book and they go I'm not going to go down all the blind alleys I did with the first one. I'm going to plan this and just 
see it through. You know, they're, they're going to do a blueprint and then they're going to write that blueprint and they're going to make all their mistakes in advance in that plan uh, rather than writing a first draft, realising halfway through it's not working, going back, changing something and rewriting it. They want to kind of like cut that out. And invariably, when they attempt that, they have a much, much worse time because they're trying to scry into the mists and anticipate every error they might make before they make it. Now, I did this when I was writing The Ice House. I was writing at the rate of 14,000 words a week at one point. And I stopped because I started getting panicky. I was going wrong. And and guess what? All the stuff I wrote in those big binges where I was writing loads a week, pretty much I ended up using after going away and trying 15 other permutations. Because I was like, what if I'm going in the wrong direction? What if I'm messing this up? What if this isn't right? What if I've steered the ship in the wrong direction? I'm just getting further and further away from the shore. You cannot get a sense of the shape of the territory until you've done a run through of your book. You, your mistakes, your weird digressions, they will open up stuff that you'll need later. You'll do a version of a scene. And then I had a great chat with RJ Barker about this, where we talked about this and we laughed about the ways in which, you know, a scene, there's been things wrong with a scene. And then you come back later and you go, oh, and, and, and your subconscious maybe was setting something up or you can kind of reappropriate the meat or something really cool comes out of a scene. You don't use the scene, but actually that is the basis of something else. So you can recycle stuff in ways that's actually incredibly useful and sets up and it's all compost at the end of the day. I apologise for using the cliche at the end of the day there, but you... You don't need to feel like I understand, and especially if we're talking about you know people having the you know right the time to write and it costing money. Of course, like you're aware that the longer it takes you to get write a book, the less you're getting paid for it, because you, the advance stays the same, and it's only the amount of hours that you spend on the book that are elastic. So the longer it takes you to write a book, the essentially the less money you get for it, right? So a mistake you can think of in a very literal way is costing you income and money and if it if, if the mistake is big enough potentially costing you the ability to get a book contract you know the larger the gap there are is between books the more, as soon as you start thinking down that line that is you know it can be fatal right so i understand the stress of it but we have so little time in this life and we're so inhibited by embarrassment and our fear of judgment and our desire to impress others, or at least I am. I always have been, you know, I, especially when I met with some success with the honours and people liked it and people have said nice things about it in, in, in reviews. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, you're going to hate the next thing. I do. You're, I'm going to be found out and you'll be disappointed. And... You know, publishing, which is not the same as creative writing, lest we forget. But publishing is in many ways antithetical to the creative process. There's a hierarchy, there's judgment, there's a power dynamic, which means writers go their cap in hand, feeling like they're in the courts of some high duke seeking patronage. And that is not me. I, I don't wish to like launch broadsides against the publishing industry and uh, attack the people therein. Obviously, there are ways that it could be reformed, I think, like any industry. But, you know, in the publishing industry, there are some specific ways and some more general ways in which it could be it could do better, do better by its authors and just do better generally in terms of diversity of hiring, in, in terms of transparency with 
salaries for people who want to actually work in publishing, uh, people's ability to go into it without doing internships that require them to live in London and work basically unpaid or on a wage that's so low that no one could possibly survive in London on it, which means basically that you have to be living with your parents or be independently wealthy, um, which means that it's largely upper middle class people who get to do internships to be part of publishing, which means that those are the people who rise up through the ranks, which means that the whole all of publishing is, is a little bit monocultural and there are initiatives that are trying to change that and it will take time and I welcome those initiatives and we need more of them but that's true of so many industries as well so I'm not attacking publishing for that there are amazing things in it especially as it's a you know a commercial industry there's quite a lot of people working in it who do not run it always like a commercial ve- venture they run it as an artistic venture and i mean that in the in the best way you know these are businesses and yet there are people there who are running it with with passion for the love of the arts for the love of stories for the love of books because these are things they care about and because these are things they think there should be more of in the world you know it's full of people who are so enthusiastic and zealous and full of love about books and stories and pressing them into readers hands and creating an environment where writers can get paid for making these stories and creating a world in which books are available to everyone and, and, and the beauty and the empowerment that comes out of stories and books um, is you know shared and they're great advocates for reading and literacy and the spreading and development of stories so It's just that the demands of business and the demands of play quite obviously don't always mesh. So what I think we have to work on as writers is a model, a way of working where we can, if we're going to be professionals in some capacity, we we work on a way of working where we can navigate those competing demands without going completely do-lally. And it is tough. I, 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 I completely concede. And, and, and maybe tough and it's not equally tough as well. Some people have a fa- you know, fairly easy ride. They kind of coast it. And those are people who tend to be the most successful writers. And they're the ones, therefore, who get asked advice on how to be a writer the most. And there's a huge survivorship bias in that. Because their experience is in no way indicative or typical of what it's like to be a professional writer. So new writers get a completely skewed sense of what the industry is like because the voices that we amplify are completely non-representative of of the majority of the industry. But it is hard when you're asked to bring out and cultivate your inner child because that makes you vulnerable. I, I think that is... The source of great writing, it, 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 to an extent, or at least the wellspring, the engine, the motor of it is vulnerability and your inner child and your inner bravery and your willingness to experiment and play. And you don't want to immediately punish that little, playful, vulnerable, wide-eyed version of you by cuffing them round the head and yelling, no, wrong, not good enough. We have to make a living here. So this stage of the process that I'm on now with this project we're working on, you've got to treat it, I propose, a bit like we're ingesting a fuckload of magic mushrooms or LSD. You know, we're about to go on like a a big ass trip. And if we're going to survive it, 
then the only way to get through that is continually accepting, affirming and leaning into the experience. Yes, thank you. More, please. I, I know I sound like I'm leading a breathwork seminar on the beach in Bali, but just stay with me here for a second, because the worst thing you can do on a trip is to try and slam the brakes on. Oh, the fluorescent space rivers swerving into this dark part of the jungle full of mangrove swamps and creepers and strange noises. No, no, I don't want to go there. I want to go back to the constellations and the beautiful starlight. Don't take me in that direction. As soon as you resist, like that trip will get a lot, lot worse, a lot darker. Instead, you have to trust. You feel it swerving towards that dark jungle and you go, yes, Yes, the darkness, the crocodiles, the mosquitoes, big as house cats, the clotted canopy of moss and vines. And yes, more, please. Yes, thank you. Yes, show me this. And in the darkness, the bioluminescent orchids, the perfume of invisible fruit, that will all come out as well. God, I'm getting weird in my old age. Still, let's try that today. In acceptance, a turning toward, let's see what that energy might offer. So last session I worked up ideas for another of the antagonists in our story about a monarch who gets assassinated, returns from the dead and has, let's say, five days to find the perpetrators. I might shrink or grow that later on as the story requires. And so they're trying to find the perpetrators, seek vengeance and right some wrongs. I think I'm getting to the stage where I've already got some tent poles plot wise and I maybe I want to plan out the arc. I'm feeling almost ready to dive in and actually start writing prose. I think probably next episode I'll work on laying out the plan. So the story is going to be 60,000 words with a big showdown at the 15, 30 and 45,000 word mark, which doesn't totally fit with my original conception of six antagonists like mini box bosses. Although I suppose it does, right? Like you, because then you just split it into ten that like each antagonist gets about 10,000 words maybe fewer maybe fewer if you assume the op there's a bit of opening maybe they get 8,000 words each and then there's like the after the final one there's some kind of final showdown or like reversal but the that's possible it could work we'll see like like I'm not a hundred I'm not sold on the number six that was just an arbitrary one I came up with some maybe more deadly than others you know and to be honest it all means there's an especially all it means is there's going to be an especially huge struggle at those points and something which flips our previous understanding on its head what i want to do today is an extension of last week's exercise um last week i came up with some names and this week i want to come up with some images some flavor i won't know what any of them mean uh necessarily i, I just want to come up with some potential place names because that seemed to help anchoring stuff in specifics and then letting it kind of grow out from there is a bit like dropping some mold onto a piece of bread and allowing it to spread like the these individual droplets of specificity my brain just immediately was trying to invent worlds and justifications for them and thread them together so maybe some place names organizations or shops or poem titles or locations or historical battles or imaginary animals i don't know michael moorcock suggested you could go for deliberate paradoxes the hall of screaming statues etc I, I i wonder if i ought to try to zero in on a theme or motif or mood so they can at least seem to have a thematic coherence we've thought about the protagonist in this story being like a dripping candle 
and the church is spider related so i'm getting age there decay time and toil you know the spider spinning her web laboring endlessly intricacy connections traps predators threat that seems enough i think this is an old paranoid monarchical power that sees danger everywhere that appeases gods who police the darkness with guile and retribution that values secrets as currency secrets as a form of protection shadows as refuge and maybe as i go through this i can think about some diametric opposites to those things some contrasts we don't just want you know the sinister realm of black shadows and gloom. We want counterpoint, surprise, shadows are darkest against the blazing white fire of an explosion after all. Right, I'll give myself 20 minutes, then return to share with you my results. If you'd like to have a go at coming up with some names for places, people or organisations or whatever, maybe for your own world, maybe for one that doesn't exist yet, come up with some, you know, thematic locus like I did, a few words that suggest a, uh, a mood. And then you can set your timer for 20 minutes and just pause this podcast. No pressure, of course, but you're very, very welcome to join in if you'd like. Right, I'll see you back in 20. Incidental music break. 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 Okay, and that's time. Here's what I got House of the Radiant Shadow, Plane of Radiant Shadows, The Drunken Chaplain, Dry Pond, The Cold Mines, The Sundered Mountain. House Pigs, Six Necks River, Pilfer Street, The Clumsy Janitor, The Midwife Assassin, Way of the Edgeless Blade, The Blind Wayfarer, Palace of the Long Threads, Pattern Weavers, Weft Wives, Hall of the Echoing Silence, Children of the Gossamer Cage, Father Fate, God of the Liberating Chains, Pattern Dancer, Bosley Woods, The Mazes, Garden of Open Labyrinths, the Free Slaves of Tebulan, Uncle Six Toes, The Silken Maze, The Red Sun, Followers of the Gentle Snare. Bind me, O Lord, in thy web of silver. Stay my weak and trembling limbs within thy argent web. Paradise Sewers, The Lack and Wanton Chemical Works. Ladigators, The Godfist Atoll, Slew Season, Pastor, Splendor Blasts, Umbrella Emporium, Snap Knife, Tallowick Junction, Snuff Street. Um, I don't, I don't feel like that went quite as well as I'd hoped. Maybe my brief was well too, way too broad. But when, you know, my ideas for made up animals are house pigs and ladigators. I, I just, I'm just not sure that that was my finest hour which is fine you know maybe i quite like the blind wayfinder as the name of a pub i like the way of the edgeless blade as a potential martial arts style i like the children of the gossamer cage as the name adopted perhaps adopted by this conspiratorial group perhaps the you know the group of people who killed the monarch it's a nice image nicely ambiguous the children of the gossamer cage there it's a cage that you know gossamer isn't strong I, I, I'm not 
by the way, I'm not talking about this to, to reflect on how clever it is. I'm just, you know, I just came up with it in a second, but thinking about why I might like it. Children of the Gossamer Cage, you wouldn't normally think of a cage as having children, but this cage has a strange, which immediately makes it seem like it somehow has a protective element to it. Uh, gossamer doesn't seem like a substance you could build a cage out of, but gossamer's also to do with webs. So you've got a cage made out of tiny, delicate strands. But why would that keep anyone in? Well, maybe it's, you know, the strands of fate or something like that. And it somehow, the, you know, there's the real nice tension there. And I, I, I like I like that as an image. Um, I like the idea that this kingdom might see a lot of rain. I've started thinking about that. That's quite atmospheric, not necessarily reflected in any of those phrases um but it's quite atmospheric you know there could be lots of gutters and tilted roofs maybe even little water wheels and uh, you know the water wheels that are driving small machines i don't know like aside from that i don't know what i expected to happen but it all just seems very much of a muchness it could be for anything really i mean nothing ventured etc etc it'd be quite a useful warm-up exercise if you just wanted to come up with names and they weren't for any particular project i've not lost anything by having a go except 20 minutes and i'm a bit clear about what might not work so well for me so but i think that was probably too broad i i just didn't really get much out of that this time maybe you know maybe the lack and wanton chemical works there's quite good it's a little bit easing towards kind of penny dreadful parody territory so not 100% sure um anyway that was a go at something I had and I'm not sure that that went particularly well um so the suggestion is anyway 60,000 words four sections of 50,000 words a piece each section is six chapters so 2,500 words a chapter and there should be an event every four pages so I think Moorcock meant by that if you give if you assume 250 words a page every a thousand words there should be an event of some kind something that advances the plot so two and a half events per chapter whatever an event is should we, i mean shall i maybe i should just go for it today you know sketching out a rough shape you know beginning that process if i'm stuck now and i'm just producing words maybe there's no harm in having a go at that if i have a run at it and it doesn't work then i will at least i'll know what i don't know and i can come back and plan the bits i don't know fill in those gaps if that makes sense you know what might those four sections look like then maybe next time you know i could maybe you know maybe this time i can do the first quarter of the book you know have a little think about what that might contain um and 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 then I can potentially come back next. Well, we'll see how this goes. But then next time I could do the next bit. Who knows? Because um, my idea is once I've got the rough plan, then I just try to write the first draft as fast as I possibly can. Like absolutely smash through it without thinking. You know, the prose will be doubtless dreadful, but I just try and get it down. And then later I work with it and try and make it good. Uh, mainly my suggestion for doing it that way is because I've never written like that before. Uh, I tend to write very slowly and sort of really noodle on each sentence, trying to make it nice, figuring out what I want to say as I go along. Uh, and I want, just want to experiment with my process, really. Uh, you know, as this writing exercise I've just done has de demonstrated, trying something new and different doesn't always yield usable or good work, but there's no harm in trying. And I think you understand yourself as a writer a bit more and you also 
it's a it's a good reminder that you that that you, you won't you won't die from making mistakes or writing suboptimally or trying something and it not working out as you'd hoped you know an experiment is a success as long as you learn from it you don't have to reject the null hypothesis you just have to observe properly and record your observations so i think you know maybe my hope is that one my hope is that by writing it very fast i can just not string it out for the purposes of the podcast two it's a question of how much time I've actually got in my life, you know, because I've got to earn money and things like that. So I don't, can't go on doing this you know, indefinitely. I want to try and compact some of this process down. Also, because I'm not, you know, I, I don't foresee this being a novel that gets to the stage where I'm like, wow, this is good enough for me to sell to a publisher. So, the, you know, I want to just see what happens if I do it that way. Right. But I've done a bit more. I've done a lot more pre-work than maybe I would normally do. So, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm, you know, it's an arbitrary, gamified way of approaching it, and I think it gives me an excuse, right? Like you can hear in the way I'm talking about it. I'm going, oh, I don't think it will really be, you know, don't think it'd be really good to like offer to a publisher or anything like that. I'm trying to give myself permission to be crap, basically. I'm trying to make my excuses in advance, and you might think that's a bit defeatist, but I'm not saying I'm not going to do it. I'm just, and I'm not saying I'm not going to do work on it once I've done that first draft but I'm just trying to set my intention for this first draft that it's going to be quick and bad but then I'll have a shapeish shape and you you can't expect me to be good first time because I'll be writing too quickly that's the way I'm approaching it and actually it's the way that I get people to work on creative writing exercises I give not enough time to do a good job of the creative writing exercise so we have to let go we have to accept it's not going to be our best work and then we get because you know the only meaningfully good work in terms of writing is writing that exists your best work is no good if it only exists in your head as we were sort of touching on at the beginning so this is why i'm giving myself permission to write shit because i otherwise i just will not write (sighs) you know i'm hoping that that's going to be ultimately psychologically helpful i could be completely wrong that's my hypothesis, and, and I'm going to test it. But first, bef- before we get down there, because I'm, now I'm trying to adjudicate psychological problems way down the line, I need to do a little plan, don't I? So let's think about this. Four sections. I'm not even sure if the original model even fits the type of story I'm writing, because it was for a quest narrative, but forget it. So I'm, I'm going to give myself, like... I'm actually going to go away for, I think I probably need just under an hour and I'll have a bash at this first section and then I'll come back to you and I'll read you out what I got. See you in a sec. Hey, I'm back. So here's what I wrote down. It's very stream of consciousness. So let's just run through. In the first chapter, the monarch has to die. They get assassinated in the... Second chapter, they wake up, they're in the afterlife or the underworld, and they get resurrected. They hear the terms of their deal. Now, I'm hammering through this, but, you know, I'd want tension in every chapter. So, for example, here they would probably try to escape the land of the the dead. They'd get torn down by some slavering hellhound or weird psychopomp, or, you know, there'd be something weird and uncanny in the something atmospheric in the the land of the dead, and they, or they escape, or they defeat some capering imps, or they're captured, and dragged somewhere and maybe that's where they hear the terms of the deal 
um, from some kind of deity or creature or whatever, you know, you can go back for five days. You'll be resurrected for five days. What's the catch? Um, maybe this deity says the price has already been paid by the one resurrecting you. So then we've been who could be resurrecting the person and the monarch um, agrees. And then next chapter, maybe they're spat out somewhere dangerous that threatens to immediately wipe them out, you know, because we want to keep the tension going. So, you know, they suddenly wake up back in the world in a tumbling crashing river full of rapids or the snow covering storm blasted peak of a mountain maybe a, a roasting magma filled cavern somewhere where they're immediately in peril and they have to escape they scramble to safety and then maybe in the process of that escape they, they lose something important because we want to be using the no but no and or yes but strategy of like building a, a plot and tension so if they face a problem and in their attempts to ta and and they have their their attempts to tackle it get them out but if they if they if they face a problem and their attempts to tackle it don't mean that they learn something or get in more trouble i think it was pointless the time pressure always offers that in a in a, in a small amount because any obstacle slows them down and so they've got less time left but for me it's not enough on its own it's just a background extra thing so how about okay so how about they they get resurrected into this wax body and there are one or two cowled or masked figures dressed you know in some kind of ritual garb it doesn't have to they don't have to literally be cowled monks you know i can make them more interesting looking but they are figures who clearly completed the ritual and resurrected the monarch and then just as our protag is about to ask them who they are um there's a banging on the door someone's onto them thugs sent by who knows burst in um they should be different somehow you know some, somehow weird or other or magical um meanwhile the monarch is ushered by one of the um one of the resurrectors um through a trap door down into the sewers a secret exit they're given some gear to protect themselves go go there's you know, death happening upstairs as these thugs beat down trying to stop the ritual um and and and, and the people who do the ritual are, are murdered while the monarch escapes into these gross filthy sewers um being pursued um and and in the process you know they they lose most of the stuff they were given um we see this pursuer coming after them this kind of implacable figure uh and 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 somehow the the monarch escapes but we know that the person chasing them is going to be back um to try and find them and chase them down so what clue does our monarch have of where to go first of who to investigate um maybe maybe none um it would actually be better if the final thing that they have you know they were given all these trinkets that were going to protect them or help them fight or whatever um they lose most of them immediately so we're like oh shit um but maybe all they've got left is some kind of locket or pendant you know something taken from the place they were resurrected maybe it's part of the ritual left on them that has some kind of symbol or phrase or abstract clue on it um something that they're able to puzzle over so there's there's some link something that makes us go hmm why is there a, a snake on this or or wings or initials or whatever it is you know and so they escape nearly you know going through the sewers and a big you know maybe some rapids or whatever um they pull themselves out another part of the city stinking bedraggled they now look like a beggar you know they're all completely uh filthy clothes they head to a tavern to figure out what's going on perhaps 
the streets look different now. Maybe maybe a, a bridge that they knew is down. They ask about and discover that five or ten years have passed since the monarch's death. A stranger offers to take them to a tavern and buy them a drink. They get to have a conversation with that person, get some vague information about what's going on, who's in charge. Then this stranger, this accommodating stranger, excuses themselves. Um, to use the privy, moments later the protagonist realises that they've been pickpocketed. The pendant that they had is gone, they stagger to their feet, rush out in pursuit, no sign. They dash about madly. They're in confusion, they're asking people, have you seen this person? They end up um, pursuing this person down the alley of impossible angles, a bad part of town where magic spills have created weird geometries. They think they see the, the thief disappearing, they, they give chase... They find themselves in a dead end, set upon by an armed gang. Maybe the gang are are cannibals. You know, the protag protests, don't you know who I am? And they don't believe him, but but they joke that royal flesh would be quite the delicacy. So it doesn't matter that the the monarch doesn't have anything of worth on them because these people want just to eat them. And what a terrifying kind of kingdom it must be if there are cannibal gangs roaming in the areas of poverty and there's a fight scene the protag gets stabbed in the chest it doesn't hurt and they don't die and they suddenly realize something about themselves uh, and, and this body that they're in um, they manage to impale someone behind them by grabbing the haft of the dagger that's stabbing them pushing the blade deeper into their chest and then running backwards into the person behind them slamming them into the wall uh, they grab a club or something and knock another person down and the others run raising a hue and cry. Then, the figures who, who, who killed the people who resurrected the monarch um, suddenly appear. You know, they're much stronger and more terrifying and implacable. Maybe it could even just be one figure. Maybe there's just one person who turned up and is you know, just capable of killing people. You know, a kind of unstoppable, faceless assassin, like the, like the T-1000 in Terminator. They, I think the trope name for this is the implacable man. Just someone who turns up and just is like, I'm following you and I'm going to kill you and you can't stop me. I will follow you to the ends of the earth. Monarch realises it's time to bail, escapes through the streets, maybe through a weird minecart system used to transport things around or over ropes between buildings or across the floor of a dye works or slaughterhouse, whatever, until they're definitely clear they use some some means of, of escaping. They decide they have to go to see that old friend and ally that's sort of mentioned by maybe by the last per- by the person in the tavern or maybe in a poster on the wall um i don't know who that person would be but a monarch goes to find them maybe it's someone who they think can protect them maybe it's sort of someone they think they can trust the person they trust most in the world maybe someone who was hinted at by the symbols on the pendant or the ring or whatever the macguffin was that they had that they've had stolen from them maybe the figure chasing them was using a special type of magic or something and they think that might be a clue so they go out and seek this friend of theirs this ally that they remember and things have changed in the intervening years maybe this person is either much more prosperous or much less maybe the grounds of this person's house are overgrown there could be some kind of guard patrol maybe with dogs Um, but perhaps you know maybe a, a wax replica doesn't give off the same scent as a human that doesn't seem particularly exciting as a way to get through the the dog comes oh i suddenly realized the dog couldn't smell me because i'm 
I was made of wax. Another, you know, that feels to a reader must be like, well, you had, didn't have to use, that was just luck. You didn't use, that doesn't reveal anything about character, except that you were ill-prepared and then you fluked it. Well, is that exciting? No, not, not particularly, no. So maybe they need to do it. If they get through any problem, I think it has to be off their own bat. It has to reveal character and it has to... We need to see, even if we don't ultimately want this monarch to be someone who we're rooting for, or the idea of monarchy to be something we're rooting for, we need to see them making smart choices if we're going to be excited. We need to see them making good choices. We need to see them making at least competent choices. Otherwise, like I was, you know, when I went on my Postman Pat rant in a previous episode, if they're not making the best choices they can with limited resources, then the tension slackens because it's entirely mediated on the opponents being incompetent rather than their opponents playing their absolute A game and yet this protagonist somehow being one step ahead nonetheless. You know, as much as I'm not a big fan of um, the 39 steps and... uh, John Buchan's incredibly racist protagonist Richard Hannay. It's a really good book for just a, a just a very very long game of hide and seek with the main character nearly getting caught and then finding some ways to give his pursuers the slip and it's exciting and it's a it's a it's you know it's a it's a well written thriller novel it's exciting and i think we could do that you know it just it just calls upon me to come up with a, a good and satisfying and different means of that happening every time and i think it can't be that oh fortunately something that i hadn't thought of saved me rather than a flash of inspiration allowing the protagonist to save themselves i like the idea of the grounds being overgrown you know railings rusted so the monarch can sneak in but they're thinking what the hell's going on mystery there's a you know maybe a fountain gunked up with weeds maybe something horrendous dead in the undergrowth or at least frightening contrasts violently with the protag's memory of this place with you know nice you know tea in the garden and that kind of thing and and and, you know something's gone wrong you know and time has passed and uh, you know it's disturbing and then they, you know, maybe they step on something in the long grass, a silver cigarette case, tarnished. There are initials on it, TC. And they're just, it's not going to be Tim Clare, by the way, that would be. Although, you know, not that Roger Zelazny turned his nose up at including himself as a self-insert in his own book. Um, but I'm not going to do that. Anyway, you know, maybe the character's pondering that when there's a noise from the house. A voice that our protagonist recognises. Who goes there? And then a low growl. Some kind of guard animal is in the house. Also, the ally of our protagonist, maybe it's the Chamberlain, tells the guard animal to behave himself. Then calls the protagonist forth. Come along, it's all right, I'm alone. The protagonist enters the house through the front door and the animal is growling, snarling. Not a dog, but maybe it serves the same function. You know, this massive creature... The house is dimly lit, shuttered, dusty, musty, rotting hangings. The protagonist finds the Chamberlain sat alone in darkness. The Chamberlain's vision has has clearly deteriorated. There's a a smell of gin. His mind has perhaps deteriorated too, or maybe he's just drunk. The Chamberlain begins talking, seemingly rambling, 
becomes clear the Chamberlain thinks our protagonist is somebody else. It's clear from the context that, that, that this is some contact that, that, that often visits, you know, there's some person that has been visiting the Chamberlain frequently perhaps is their only regular visitor. And it's clear from the opening remarks that the Chamberlain's relationship with this visitor is strained. They're continuing some previous conversation. Listen, I've, I've thought about it and I've changed my mind. They initially take the protagonist's silence as a shock. Um, but, but after they ask a direct question and the monarch doesn't answer, we see them become annoyed. Then the monarch responds, it's me. Small twitch of the hand betrays some surprise in the Chamberlain, but he otherwise strangely seems not to react. He crosses the room to, to his chair, changes the subject. The monarch speaks. I think the Chamberlain's name, by the way, is Seldom Abraxas. The monarch states plainly, I'm back from the dead, resurrected. I've got less than five days to find out who killed me. I think I was betrayed. Seldom. I think there was a conspiracy to kill me. Meanwhile, old Seldom appears to be chewing on something, some little silver thing he wears on a necklace. Too late, the monarch hears the thumping of the guard beast responding to the blowing of what was clearly a whistle. Maybe the one by Seldom isn't even the big one. The big one is is that, that creature's sister, some colossal beast, six legs, rippling muscles, face full of sucking tendrils, thunders into the protagonist and takes them down. The next chapter, we see Seldom having his beast, his guard beast, drag the monarch out into the backyard. The monarch is hanging limp, feigning death. Presumably, Seldom doesn't realise that the king is, or the monarch is still conscious. Seldom begins gathering dry wood to light a bonfire. Now, a bonfire might really destroy the pro protagonist. The protagonist um, glances around while being held in the jaws of this huge beast, uh, pretending to be dead. Maybe they don't realise that the monarch's made of wax and so they you know can survive the kind of whoop bites that they've been given um they glance around and, and improvise a means of escape uh the beast then chases them into the long grass in the garden where they turn and impale it on a on a pitchfork that's left there that we saw earlier then the monarch charges out seldom calling for the beast um the monarch dispatches the other smaller creature corners the former Chamberlain, Seldom Abraxas, demands answers. Who was Seldom expecting? What's going on? But there's no time for a proper answer. Guards are coming. Seldom has his own questions, wants to say his own piece, says, I warned you, maybe tells the monarch that they're too late. We won. Who knows? But there's not enough time to get to the full story. I think it's important that Seldom that the monarch asks good questions, direct questions. Um, so if there's any evasion, then it's to do with seldom is motivated, not to say, not that the monarch doesn't think to ask the questions that are most important. Um, and maybe the protagonist kills them and then has to split, flees guards onto the next person who seldom's clue maybe led them to. Maybe the next person could be our archmage, you know, um, in the magic sector, as I'm calling it. The next chapter and the protagonist is in the magic acad academic area on the opposite side of city or, or uh, 
you know, don't know how far away. It'd be good that it eats up hours of time to get there, increasing pressure. Maybe they stole some new clothes from Seldom's house so they're better dressed, or that, that would mean not running away as quickly as I planned. Maybe they know those creatures who were protecting the Chamberlain must have been summoned or that the whistle he was using was somehow magic. Or maybe the protagonist doesn't get away. They're, they're run down and it's our archmage, um, Merit Paracast. Paracast is more guileful. He takes the protagonist back to the academy and spins them a yarn. But really, Paragast wants to find out who resurrected the monarch and perhaps turn the situation to his advantage. So now the monarch is in Paracast's lab, has been taken back there and realises that they're a prisoner. They got there with a ward disguising their identity. Paracast spins more yarns, slices off a piece of waxen flesh to analyse. The protagonist is quickly trying to figure out some more clues. Paracast mentions Mother Nidus's divinations, protagonist senses an evasion. The truth is, and I can reveal this later perhaps, when we meet Mother Nidus, her divinations, her plucking of the silver threads foretold that the monarch would execute all the conspirators within five years. And so Paracast felt that he had to take part in the conspiracy to execute the monarch to save his own life. One thing that does seem clear Paracast does not recognise the ma magic that um, resurrected the monarch. Or does, but it's very old, very vicious kind of magic that predates the nation. Very disturbing. Clearly trying to hide how disturbed he feels from our protagonist. Paracast believes one of his rival conspirators was behind it. So the monarch suggests maybe going to see their sibling, um, who is now on the throne. You know, the king, the, the monarch... I know I'm using a lot of pronouns here and lots of vagues, and, and maybe this um, this plan is going to seem clearer when I've plugged more people into this, but, you know, they have some younger sibling who would be the next in line to the throne. And, you know, so they suggest going to see them, you know, the person who has replaced the monarch. And Paracast suggests observing propriety with the appropriate hesitation but you don't think your sibling might have been behind your death. After all, who else stood to benefit more? But their sibling has never wanted to rule, never shown any interest in leading. Unless, of course, it was all a ruse. Although perhaps that would be precisely what a group of conspirators would want, muses our protagonist, an indifferent, malleable sovereign who would be only too glad to hand over the ugly business of the day-to-day -day running of the state to a cabal of advisers. The protagonist has palmed some small magical trinket on the way into Paracast's chamber. Um, the, the trinket does something that seems like a party trick level effect, e.g. makes a small object float or fills or empties a glass with water, creates a small range micro portal the size of a coin, etc. And I think the protagonist would later use that to escape. Uh, Paracast makes their excuses, um, but says the monarch should stay put for now for their own safety. If these strange figures are hunting them down, it's best that no one knows where they are. Paracast adds that his chambers are well protected with wards and other measures, but the clear implication is that the monarch is now a prisoner. The monarch is left there. Time is ticking on, causing rising tension. The monarch knows that they're a prisoner and they know that they have to escape before so they can go and find out who is responsible. And they realise that they're a prisoner and they get talking with a trapped demon who's also in the lab, who's surrounded by wards and sealed in glass. 
Perhaps they used the micro-portal trinket to be able to communicate with the demon through the soundproof glass. They want freedom. This is the demon now wants freedom. It's quickly apparent that the demon is bound by, amongst other things, a truth-telling enchantment. So the protagonist asks clever questions to get vital information, realises Paracast being involved in the conspiracy will never willingly let them go. So they conspire with the demon to escape, while knowing the demon is incorrigibly evil, plans to wreak havoc and will probably attempt to wipe them out too once free of their imprisonment. I think we'd probably want to end the scene with the monarch probably seeming to deliberate, but when Paracast returns, the demon still appears to be captured. And then the monarch strikes or stuns Paracast, the demon escapes and possesses the archmage, then the protagonist gets let out of the wards etc by the possessed archmage because they all you know work on ones being the archmage and the demon is going to go crazy and start attacking things but wait there's a final safety device triggers a fail safe in case paracast were ever possessed and a great arcane battle kicks off between students the possessed archmage and then the demon and our protagonist escapes through the midst of the chaos now they've lost a day and have the entire magic college after them. And that, I guess, is as far as I got. Um, I don't know if that fits the model. I don't know if all of that can be squeezed into 15,000 words. That, like, 15,000 words is pretty crazy brief, the way I write. And it doesn't sound like that showdown particularly turns everything on its head. There's not a huge reveal there, something that that, that reverses what we thought we knew. So I think something has to be revealed and something more has to be introduced. We need a payoff, a twist and an advance. I'm almost feeling like revenge. I mean, I I don't know what you think. Do let me know, by the way, if you want to, you know, give me your thoughts on this. But I wonder if revenge isn't a strong enough motive here. If it isn't compelling enough, why does it matter so, so much? Because it just feels like the failure state for this story is just you go back to being dead again. So what? Oh no, we were already there. They don't really have anything to lose. What was interrupted by the monarch's death? You know, what very important thing to them were they just about to put into action? You know, what thing were they about to negotiate or build or finish that was so, so, so important? Do they have an heir? Or is it just a project? You know, know, what do they care? What do they and more importantly, what do we care about so damn much that we are with them, vying for them to burn down every building and slice through every motherfucker in their path just to save it? What what could possibly matter that it's introduced in that first chapter that they're just about to complete so much that we want, want, want them to be successful, even if later in the book we realise they're wrong? And, and it's not worth it, you know, that giving everything for this goal is selfish and terrible and kind of what makes a monarch a terrible way to organise a civilization. There's a YouTuber called Matt Colville who does mostly videos about D&D and role-playing games, but I think he's got a fantastic grasp of story and plot. He wrote for video games. And one thing he's talked about when it comes to quests is giving the heroes a strong verb. Find. Kill protect, save, defeat, capture. All of those are clear, unambiguous verbs with clear fail states. You either kill the person or you don't kill them, right? It's clear what you have to do. It's simple and any reader or audience member or player can get their heads around that uh, and, and, and then make their own decisions about what the best way to 
complete that, might execute that verb might be. In this story, I feel like the protagonist's initial verb is investigate. Now, clearly that's a motivation that drives many stories, but I wonder if, if I'm really going to embrace the pulp fantasy ideas that Moorcock is talking about. If this really is kind of like a fantasy Kill Bill, you know, Kill Bill... I, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a massive Tarantino fan, to be honest. I find, you know, a lot of his work a bit, a bit cynical. Um, I, I find it, some of it, just, just hit, you know, slightly rubs me the wrong way, and that's fine. You know, not everything is for me, but that's a good verb, right? Kill. Right? There's clear that that the whole story of Kill Bill is finding Bill and killing him, right? It's really, really clear, really clear. And that allows the whole plot to have quite a an obvious arc, right? And so we need to have a big think about what, how exactly... Uh, wow, it's really interesting. Maybe... I mean, maybe it doesn't have to be, you know, I'm a big Columbo fan. Maybe it doesn't have to be such a mystery. Maybe it can seem to be obvious that the monarch was bumped off by his sister. Maybe to him, it's like just very obvious that his sister did that. And he knows that and he has to be able to find her and get to her. To kill her. And maybe these people that he's running into. He's he's finding them. And killing them. To be able to find his sister. Not that he's investigating. But you know. If if this verb is going to be a little stronger. And the verb can change from scene to scene. It can be find. You know. if, If we're trying to find one person. But maybe you know, the monarchy is working through these people because they are the people who might have click cues for him to find his sister or his brother and kill them. I mean, that that would be... That's kind of... I quite like that. It's simpler. And of course there are reveals. And of course there might be ambiguities. And of course we might doubt whether they were definitely responsible. But there's more drive there. You know, when the first, when the monarch is first resurrected and flees the attackers, maybe they need to hear someone quote, you know, croak, find, insert name before they expire. So there's a clear goal. Maybe the god or demigod who speaks to them down in the underworld needs to give clear conditions. You know, if you find and kill the one responsible for your death before your five days are up, then dot, dot, dot. If not, then dot, dot, dot. Clear win, fail conditions, stakes. Maybe if they successfully avenge their death, then they'll be properly brought back to life. You know, maybe that's it. But there should be something really bad that happens if they don't get their vengeance. And, so, you know, something good. Much to consider anyway. Look, I, I can ponder some of this later on, but I, I, I'm getting a little fatigued. I think we're all more easily burned out at the moment. So I hope you don't mind my being kind to myself and you who's listened to all of this and me thinking out loud with great patience and forbearance. But I, I feel like actually that process there was, was actually fruitful. Uh, after 
sort of not particularly great run of names and ideas for things, I think that plotting, I do feel a bit closer now. And I do think having a strong verb... I think the two. I think the, the strong verb is kill, isn't it? If this was going to be called the only good king, or the only good queen, then that can have a double. That can have like a, an extra meaning, right? Because is a you know is a dead queen. Then the protagonist is a dead queen but also their quest is to kill the queen. Something quite quite nice and simple about that, right? Um, but I, I think once we've got this rough synopsis done, I can sit down and just try to beast through the thing, you know, just hammer through it, fingers crossed. That's my plan, and I think it'd be quite silly and just kind of like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. It'll be like a five-year-old's anecdote, but I don't mind writing that. And then maybe I can come back to it later and try and, you know, write punch-ups and, and make it a bit snazzier. But next time I'll do a bit more story planning because I like... I, I like the idea of this now a bit. Like, I, I, I like how it's starting to simplify in a way that makes sense to me. So thank you for listening. Um, If you like the show, you can help me keep the lights on and continue to make podcasts via my coffee page. That's ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare. Also, just drop me a line. You know, let me know what you think. If you've got any ideas, whether you think I've gone completely off base or whether you, anything I said resonated. Um, and please spread the word about Death of a Thousand Cuts, this podcast on social media. That means a huge amount. Finding new listeners is what keeps the podcast alive um you know give the nod to your writing buddies because they might not have heard of it and they might really really enjoy it and we've got an archive of over 300 episodes now so there's plenty of stuff to listen to right i really am done now nighty night take care of yourself and i hope you have a wonderful week of writing <laughs>